we come to that time in a worship service, the very pinnacle of a worship service, where we have the incredible opportunity to look into and bow before the word of the living God. And this morning we're going to move away from our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, where we've been for many, many months. And this morning I would like to take several different scripture passages in an effort to somehow help you understand better what has happened from a biblical perspective with respect to the hurricane that has brought such devastation and suffering to our country. The world has just witnessed yet another demonstration of the power of Almighty God and the inconceivable destruction of Hurricane Katrina. Many, of course, who deny God would say that this catastrophe was an act of Mother Nature. Unfortunately, that is a blasphemous attitude that will ultimately lead one to eternal regret. But many people will ask in the midst of such suffering, where is God in all of this? And sadly, many very religious people will be quick to reply, oh, God didn't have anything to do with this. He's just here to pick up the pieces after it's over. Many will say that Katrina was just another hurricane, another random act of nature in a random universe. Well, is that true? Is it true that it's, this is just Mother Nature, that really God had nothing to do with this? Maybe God doesn't even exist, as many people would think. Or is it true that God is kind of as shocked as we are? This just kind of really caught him by surprise, and now he's scrambling around to somehow pick up the pieces. Or is there a third position? And the third position is that, indeed, God is in control. And beloved, let me put it to you this way. From the Bible's perspective, what we see is that our sovereign God has ordained everything, including that storm, to accomplish his saving purposes in his universe. Now, of course, many people would say, Pastor, that is utter nonsense. And certainly for those who are not united to Christ and have never been transformed by the power of the spirit, all of the Bible is nonsense. But the reality is what I'm telling you is true. Whether we like it or not, and certainly for those of us who know and love Christ, these truths will bring comfort. They will bring conviction. They are going to bring clarity as well as confirm much of what we already know. So this morning. I want to go to the only spiritual authority, and that's not me, nor is it you, but it is the word of the living God. And this morning we are going to see three marvelous realities of what the Bible would say about a storm such as we have seen. And this morning I've entitled my sermon, Katrina, God Has Spoken. For indeed, I believe God has spoken through this storm, and he has said three things that we want to look at this morning. He has said, behold, number one, my glory. Number two, behold, my wrath. And number three, 
Behold my mercy. First of all, as we think about beholding the glory of God in such a cataclysmic event, let's take our Bibles and look at Romans chapter 11. This will not be a typical exposition of of a text, but rather we're going to look topically at several texts because I know that certainly people in this community and many of our listeners around the world are asking questions that need to be answered from a biblical perspective. So we want to look at several passages of Scripture this morning. In Romans chapter 11, we see the end really of uh, basically 11 chapters where the Apostle Paul is reflected upon the glorious doctrine of justification by faith. He's talked about God's marvelous plan of redemption, how that all things are working together to that end. And he's talked about God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And then finally, his heart overflows with a doxology in Romans chapter 11. And as we look at verse 33, here's what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And then in verse 36, he goes on to say, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Dear friends, whenever we behold the infinite power of God, whether it's in the fury of a hurricane or in the radical transformation of a repentant sinner who suddenly becomes a new creature in Christ, whatever we behold, if we look at it, we will behold the glory of God. Whether it's in the violence of a volcano or in the tranquility of a nursing infant, We behold the glory of God. His glory is always on display. And as Christians, we must view every spectacle through the lens of faith and see the majesty and the excellency of God manifested in all that he does, whether it's positive or negative. Because all things give us an opportunity to behold his glory here in Romans chapter 11 in verse 36. Notice he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In other words, he is the source. He is the sustainer and he is the summation of all things. He created all things for his glory. The Bible tells us he upholds all things by the word of his power. The word of God tells us that he governs all things with absolute authority. And ultimately, he is going to bring all things to fruition. His glorious plan of redemption will reach a point of consummation where he will ultimately glorify himself forever. Now, to keep the big picture, once upon a time, the Bible tells us that the earth was unformed. There were no sun, there were no stars, no moon. Until he spoke them into being, all that there were was really the light of his glory. Yet even then he reigned and ruled in realms unknown. And then the triune, thrice holy God 
decreed an infinitely perfect plan to give him glory, a plan that we would call redemption. And in six days, he set into motion through creation that plan. And he continues to this very day to reign supreme over all of his creation. He is indeed the majestic monarch from everlasting to everlasting. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us through the inspiration of the spirit in Ephesians chapter one in verse 11 that he works all things after the counsel of his will. In prophecy, we see our sovereign God glorifying himself by allowing us into the secret chambers of his eternal counsels. And then he precisely unfolds his glorious intentions through history. And as we look at all that happens through history, our eyes behold the marvel of his sovereign rule. Because indeed he is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. His dominion is universal. It is unlimited and it is eternal. The Spirit of God spoke through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 46 in verse 9. And God said there, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You see, friends, God has decreed all things according to his eternal purposes. And the God of the Bible orchestrates all things for our good and for his glory, and nothing catches him by surprise. Now, some will say, well, what about Hurricane Katrina? Well, indeed, this glorifies God because he brings both blessing and calamity. We read in Amos chapter 3 and verse 6, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And the answer is obviously, yes, he has. Job said after losing all ten of his children in Job 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And after being covered with boils, he said in Job 2 and verse 10, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then Job concluded in prayer in Job 42 two, I know, he says, that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Dear friends, all that you are, all that you have, all that occurs in your life, whether it's good or bad from your perspective, whether it's positive or negative, all of those things have been ordained by a sovereign God. And all of those things are working together for our good and for his glory, even though we may not understand them. He has absolute rule over all that he has created. With every natural disaster, as they are often called, we tend to see many religious people trying to distance God from any involvement. But I'd like to take you to another passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. And the context here is Isaiah is lamenting a bit over how God is going to use wicked people to accomplish his purposes as they will 
come down upon the rebellious Israelites. And in this context, Cyrus, the Persian monarch, will be the instrument of divine judgment. And all of that was terribly hard for them to understand. And in verse 15 of Isaiah 45, we read a very interesting text. Isaiah says, truly, thou art a God who hides himself. Oh, God of Israel, Savior. In other words, again, God's saving purposes are often hidden, even in calamity, a calamity that was about to occur with God's covenant people because of their sin. Don't you wish the president would come on television and read verses 20 through 22 of this text? Notice what God tells us here. Gather yourselves and come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. In other words, all of those people who are worshiping everything other than the true and the living God. Verse 21, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them counsel together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now, again, some will say, well, if God had something to do even with this hurricane. I want nothing to do with such a God. And my friend, if such an attitude is yours, I guarantee you that he will have nothing to do with you unless you repent. And others will see such things and they will demand an explanation. They will come before God and say, why? As if God owes us an explanation But, oh, child of God, may I warn you, as I've warned you before, never demand an audience with the living God. He owes us no explanation. That great Puritan Francis Turretin said, and I quote, the extent of the absolute right of God must not be curiously searched into, much less rashly defined, nor is it in our power or place to put any limits either to the power or the sovereignty of God. If no one could endure a little worm disputing the authority of men and setting bounds to it, how much less is this to be suffered in a man who, compared with God, is far more insignificant than a worm? Child of God, never attempt to explain the incomprehensible secrets of God's eternal decrees. Dismiss those curious musings about his sovereign rule instantly when they come into your mind, because this is the realm of the almighty, not the realm of the creature. And we should rejoice in all that he is up to, even though we cannot understand it, because somehow in purposes that we cannot fully understand, he is ultimately going to glorify himself. So even in this storm, God is saying, first of all, behold my glory. But secondly, he is saying, behold my wrath. 
And here I would like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter one. But before we look at this particular text, I want to remind you, and some of you may recall this, there are really four different kinds of wrath that we see in the Bible. And they happen basically in this sequence, even though we see them dispersed throughout the sacred text. First of all, there is the sowing and reaping wrath, where when someone violates the moral order of God or even the physical order of God, then the ravages of sin begin to take over. We see this, this for example, in the immoral community of the homosexual and others who would violate God's moral order and physical order. And if that's what you sow, then you will reap things like AIDS. We see it in our society where if you sow a godless attitude, you will reap a godless society. And so we see violence and human suffering and anarchy. Indeed, if we sow the wind, we will reap the whirlwind. So there is the wrath, first of all, of sowing and reaping. But also there is the wrath of divine abandonment, which would be kind of the next sequence if that is occurring in someone's life, if if they're sowing and reaping things that are not of God. We see the wrath of divine abandonment. And here's where God, because of man's systematic and willful rejection of his rule in one's life, eventually he silences his invitation along with his restraining grace in a person's life and in, in society And ultimately gives people over or abandons them to the consequences of their sin to let them experience the full expression of their wickedness. But there's a third type of wrath, and that would be cataclysmic wrath. We see this in the Bible when God, for example, blotted out all of humanity, save Noah and his family in the great flood. We see it in. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their defiant debauchery and homosexuality and so on. There's a fourth kind of wrath, which would be eschatological wrath or the wrath of a future judgment that we see, for example, in the book of Revelation and other prophetic texts. When God will pour out his wrath upon an ungodly world during the time of the tribulation. And I suppose also we could even add a fifth one. There's the ultimate wrath of eternal hell for those who refuse to confess Christ as Savior and Lord. But I want to draw your attention here to Romans chapter one. And look at this concept of the wrath of abandonment for just a moment. Notice in Romans one and verse 18. The spirit of God speaks to us through the inspired Apostle Paul and says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This wrath of God is revealed. The grammar would indicate that this is a continual abandonment that God inflicts upon those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, what truth is that? Well, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In other words, everybody, whether they know know Christ or not, know that there is a God, but most people can't stand it. 
And here's why God's wrath is poured out upon them. In verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, through reason, man can look at creation and know that there is a God. Therefore, they're without excuse. Also, in verse 21, it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So through reason, as well as through conscience, man knows that there is a God. And because of our conscience, we all know that we're sinners and that God is judge and that we are ultimately responsible to him. Now. In the recent tragedy of Katrina, I would submit to you that we see all of the forms of God's wrath. It's interesting what, go, what, what the Apostle Paul goes on to say here in this text. And this is so indicative of our society in verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, because they love sin, they're going to worship anything and everything other than God. And then notice the progression here of what happens. And here's the abandonment that occurs. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over. Paradidomai in the original language, it was a term used to describe one who has been handed over to an executioner. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. In other words, because of the cravings, the illicit desires of people who refuse to honor God, God gives them over. God gives their hearts over to impurity. Impurity is a word describing the contents of the grave. If that's what you want, I will let you have that. That their bodies might be dishonored. In other words, used shamelessly. Why? Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So first, God gives people over to the wickedness of their heart, to their lusts. But secondly, he gives them over to experience the consequences of bodily destruction in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to the degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman. By the way, the word function in the original language is the term used for sexual intercourse. This is a text that clearly pronounces judgment upon those who would violate God's moral order. And he goes on to say that in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And certainly the due penalty of violating God's not just moral order, but his physical order will be things such as AIDS well, not only does God give people over to a heart that will pursue all of its lusts 
and then give them over to use their body in ways that are unimaginable. But finally, the mind goes. This is the last thing in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And here's the list, dear friends. And if this doesn't describe our country, I don't know what does. Verse 29, they're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, again, in light of. The recent tragedy of Katrina, I can see all of the different aspects of God's wrath at work here. It was interesting. Maybe you heard Geraldo Rivera, one of the news anchors, crying out in utter anguish to America when he was standing in one place. I forget which place it was where there were there were corpses, there were there were rapes and murders occurring inconceivable anarchy and wickedness. And he cried out saying, this is Dante's furnace. In other words, this is a picture of hell. Yes, indeed it is. Because God wants us to get a picture of hell. Because God is up to something even in the storm. And while we can never know the mind of God when he brings such tragedy, we do know again that his saving purposes are often concealed in such calamities. We do know that God brings judgment upon the wicked from time to time to get our attention and to call us to repentance. The numerous gambling casinos that litter the Gulf Coast with all of their associated violence and immorality and debauchery has made that region of our country a stronghold of wickedness that represents the godlessness in America. I saw on the news the other day that just the tax revenue alone from the casinos in Mississippi are $500,000 per day. Well, folks, all of that is gone. The nickname for New Orleans is Sin City. The crime and the murder rate in that city is one of the worst in the country. I've not been there, but I've been told that when you go there, the streets reek of alcohol and urine. Prostitutes and homosexuals roam the streets along with thugs. It's notorious for its defiant debauchery. Notorious for Mardi Gras, sometimes called Fat Tuesday, a celebration rooted in a satanically inspired pagan religion and blasphemously mixed with with Christianity, resulting in one of the most immoral and wicked celebrations in the country, probably in the world. New Orleans has been a cesspool of human depravity, dear friends, and in a matter of minutes, it was reduced to a literal cesspool. I was reading an excerpt from TripSmarter.com, a visitor information resource for travelers to the southeast United States. And in that 
little expose trying to get you to come to New Orleans. Here's what they said. And by the way, let me preface this by saying there are also many people that love the Lord there in that city and in that region. We know that. And God will continue to preserve them and use them mightily for his glory. And some of them may have the privilege of slipping into glory before us. But in that particular resource, I read the following and I quote, this week, New Orleans was to observe, quote, Southern Decadence Day with 100,000 homosexuals gathering there to commit unspeakable acts in public. And actually, that was the, 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 the title that someone had given me to read this. So, in other words, this week, dear friends, the week of this storm, this was what was to occur. One hundred thousand homosexuals coming together in Southern Decadence Day. Now, here's what the website said. Quote, New Orleans, Louisiana, Southern Decadence started 34 years ago as a simple going away party. As a top gay Labor Day weekend destination, it has evolved into one of our world's major annual events. One of the largest annual celebrations in New Orleans, it has become known as the, quote, gay Mardi Gras, end quote. People begin to arrive on the Wednesday before Labor Day and generally don't even think about stopping or going home until the following Tuesday. With over 100,000 gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender participants last year, the economic impact on the city was estimated to be in excess of ninety five million dollars. Mayor Ray Nagin has recognized its importance with an official proclamation to welcome the event. End quote. It goes on to say, and I might add this, the city's wildest neighborhood gets even crazier as the French Quarter is packed for the entire event. However, the big day is Sunday. Folks, that's today. The big day was supposed to be today. God had other plans, didn't he? That's when they go on to say the Grand Marshal leads the annual parade through the streets. Tradition dictates, they say, that the previous year's Grand Marshal choose the, their successor, a well-guarded secret until the annual coronation ceremony in July. Then the new Grand Marshal will then select the official theme, colors and song and will help to plan some of the events particulars, end quote. Dear friends, what happens in this public event is too vile even for the imagination, much less to mention and when I think of these things, I'm reminded of Isaiah 5 when God was getting ready to judge Judah for their wickedness. And in that text, reminding us of what God reminded his covenant people some 600 years before Christ, we read six woes that God pronounced upon the people. Woes that parallel what's going on in the United States of America. He cursed them for their greedy materialism, for their drunken dissipation, for redefining morality, calling evil good and good evil, for haughty humanism where they exalted man's wisdom over God's wisdom, for corrupt leadership and for defiant debauchery. And in verses 18 and 19 of Isaiah 5, here's what we read. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with rope carts or cart ropes. By the way, here. The prophet is using bitter sarcasm to depict a scene of of beasts of burdens 
uh, pulling wagons of people doing unspeakable acts in public. Like they were in a parade. Then it goes on to describe their defiance of God as they taunt him, saying, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. In other words, come on, God, do something if you're so holy. And we know, according to this text and according to history, that soon God annihilated them with the barbaric hordes of the Assyrians and later the the Babylonians. Folks, this is what happens when people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God eventually abandons them to their lusts. Their minds absolutely become so filled with evil that they mock God. And eventually, God gets enough of it and he judges the wicked. I was reading an article about the looting that was going, that's going on down in that region of the country. Here's what it said, and I quote, The havoc wreaked by Hurricane Katrina was compounded Tuesday and Wednesday by throngs of looters breaking into stores and making off with anything and everything they could could get their hands on, and not just food for survival. Press reports said police made little attempt to stop the swarms of looters who vastly outnumbered them as the looters filled trucks, shopping carts, and bins with clothing, electronics, jewelry, and anything else there for the taking. Dear friends, whenever anarchy occurs in the streets, it's because anarchy has first occurred in the heart. Because people have angrily rebelled against the true and the living God. Beloved, America flaunts her sin in the face of a holy God. Ours is a culture of religious hypocrisy. Ours is a culture of blatant defiance of God's holy law. There is a disbelief in our society that God will ever judge. And certainly there is the utter rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And like those who refused to heed the warning to flee the wrath of the hurricane, I fear that millions continue to turn a deaf ear to preachers who beg them to repent, to flee from the wrath to come, the wrath of an eternal. Uh, of a holy God, uh, an eternal wrath that will utterly eclipse what we saw with Katrina. An eternal wrath where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, as the Bible tells us. Dear friends, Katrina is merely a foretaste of what is to come. God is serious about His holiness. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, that is the truth. And God will not be mocked. Let's look at at another text this morning briefly. Look at Isaiah chapter 28. I'd like to take you here for a moment. Isaiah chapter 28. Yet another series of woes or curses against ancient Israel and Judah. Again, who paralleled the wickedness of America. Verse 1 of Isaiah 28, he says, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley. Of those who were overcome with wine. In other words, cursed are you, you people who live in licentiousness. Verse 2, Behold, the Lord has a strong and a mighty agent. 
as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. And of course, this was a reference to the impending doom of the hordes of the Assyrians that would soon invade them. Verse three, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. Look down at verse seven. Where he talks about the religious leaders of that culture, that society, these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink, the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment for all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. God tells it like it is, doesn't he? And then in verse 10, we see how that the people of that day, like the people of our day, turned the word of God, the word of the Lord into meaningless gibberish. And here's what God says. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Now, friends, in the Hebrew, this is sarcastic mocking. This is childish gibberish. And so literally what they're saying is, oh, you preachers with the Bible, that silly little baby talk. We don't buy any of that. That's what he's saying here. Verse 11. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. In other words, you want gibberish? I'll give you gibberish. I'll give you the Assyrians that will come down and conquer you. And you won't know what they're saying. How dare you mock the living God? That's the point. Verse 12, he who said to them, here is rest. Give rest to the weary. In other words, he he offered them repentance. He offered them mercy. And he said, Here is repose, but they would not listen. So in verse 14, he says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers. And friends, this is my heart for the people in our country, for the people that are here in this church and in our community. And hear the sound of my voice through the technology that's available. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 14, O scoffers. Who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. And here's why. Here's why the judgment. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. Sheol, we have made a pact. Now, let me stop for a moment. You see, the sneering leaders of Jerusalem had formed an ungodly alliance with the Egyptians for protection against the Assyrians. They weren't going to trust in God. They were going to continue their apostate, rebellious, idolatrous ways and form an ungodly alliance with Egypt. And of course, the Egyptians were notorious for necromancy. That's a divination for sorcery where they would communicate with the dead. And so God says, because you have said in verse 15, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. So now here God is mocking them. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Now, folks, here he comes to a prophetic text where he's prophesying about the coming Messiah, the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the church. 
Behold, I'm laying a so- in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And then, folks, here we behold God's mercy. He who believes in it, referring to Jesus, will not be disturbed. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters shall overflow the secret place where he contrasts now Messiah's reign over the scoffers of Jerusalem. Dear friends, here in verse 16, where he says he who believes in it, referring to the cornerstone, will not be disturbed. Here's where, again, even in great calamity for these people, as in our day today, when we look at calamity like we see in Katrina, we not only behold God's glory and God's wrath, but even we behold His mercy. And that's what God would have us here as we see this today. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture, he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. There's where Peter now reflects back upon this text in Isaiah that we just read. He goes on to say this precious value then, referring to Jesus, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, in other words, the Jewish leaders that saw him, examined him, saw all of his miracles, heard him teach in ways that they couldn't even imagine. And yet they still rejected that cornerstone for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. And dear friends, what a stumbling block the Lord Jesus Christ is today. Virtually everything that I've said here over the past several minutes is so politically incorrect that people literally want to murder people like me and like you who believe it. But friends, be that as it may, this is the truth. And again, people will say, well, where is the mercy in Katrina? Well, it seems obvious to me. The mercy lies in those who have survived and still have a chance to repent. There is the divine mercy. Another opportunity to confess Christ. My friends, we're all going to die. In fact, we're all dying. Some of us are going to die sooner than others. In fact, Job says in Job 14:1, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9:27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. But friends, the good news, the good news of the gospel is that sin and death have been conquered by Christ. We will not have to stand before him as our judge, but as our loving heavenly father, if we have placed our faith in Christ as our savior and asked him to save us from our sins. Then we can echo the words of the Apostle Paul, who said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a glorious sight to behold, dear friends, mercy that is available for all who seek it. 
I've seen it so many times. I've seen it when the Holy Spirit awakens a soul from from sinful slumber. And suddenly that soul begins to see their true condition. They begin to mourn over sermons that they have heard that would melt iron. And yet they heard them and they rejected them. They laughed at them. People who begin to agonize over the many warnings that they refuse to hear. The many terrors of the Lord that they saw and yet ignored them and went on about their lives. And yet what a glorious thing to behold the mercy of God when people begin to see the judgment of God and they see that sort of divine justice looming over their heads and they begin to understand with sheer brokenness the horrors of sin to the point where they become certain that there is no pardon for them. Spurgeon said it so well many years ago. And I quote, every man who is really brought to Christ is first stripped of all on which he placed reliance as ground of hope and made to see that in himself there is guilt deserving condemnation and rebellion demanding punishment. But there is no quality which can enlist divine sympathy or secure by its own excellence, divine regard in us by nature. There are no beauties of character, no charms of virtue or loveliness of conduct. To win the almighty heart, we were called transgressors from the womb and rightly we are named. End quote. Oh, my friend, hear this today. If this is you, if you look at yourself and you think of a thousand reasons why God would be just in condemning you forever. If you have not one reason in your favor that he should welcome you into his holy presence then I would plead with you as a minister of the gospel to cast yourself on the mercy of God and he will save you. For God says, come unto me. I have laid all of your sins on my son, the Lord Jesus, your savior. He has borne them upon his holy head. He has paid the penalty. Oh, dear friends, what mercy there is in our redeeming God. The one who crowns himself in the glory of his saving grace a redeeming God whose long suffering is beyond our understanding, a redeeming God who is so merciful that he brings tragedy to wake people from the lethargy of their sin and rebellion. A redeeming God who blots out our sins and remembers them no more, who redeems us from the pit, causing all creatures to stand amazed and say, who is a God like this? A redeeming and a merciful God. That passes by transgression, that passes by our iniquity and our sin. Indeed, who but the God of amazing grace, who could have saved a wretch like me, and then to take me and others like me and press us to his precious chest and welcome us with open arms as. His adopted child. Dear friends, I plead with you today for your eternal soul's sake. Look upon the tragedy of Katrina and realize that God has spoken. And what he is saying is, behold, my glory. Behold, my wrath. And behold, my mercy. Let's pray together. 
Father, we pray that you will take the truths of your text and by the power of your spirit, we pray that you will melt even the hardest heart. We pray that sinners will come to a saving knowledge of you this day. Lord, may they run to the foot of the cross. And Lord, we again would lift up all of those who are suffering. Lord, our hearts go out to them. We pray for the homosexual. We pray for the prostitute. We pray for those that are just indifferent to God. We pray for the religious hypocrite hypocrite that knows not even the depths of their hypocrisy. Lord, we love them because you would have them come to a saving knowledge of yourself. And Lord, may you use us as your instruments of righteousness to warn them of the wrath that is to come and to give them the wonderful news of the gospel of Christ that their sins can be forgiven, that there is mercy in the blood of the Lord Jesus, for it's in His name that we pray with great thanksgiving. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.